taken from James chapter 1, and we'll reread verses 5 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Again, may God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. We mentioned last week in our introduction that James is considered the wisdom book of the New New Testament, and since wisdom is going to be addressed here, and we will pick up, uh, and, and I would argue that the content of most of James is really about acting in wisdom. So since we will address it here and more specifically in chapter 3, let's begin with offering a working definition for wisdom, a working definition of wisdom. And I would put it this way, wisdom is the integration of knowledge and discretion that forms the basis of sound reasoning from which a person can act or speak in a manner that is appropriate for that situation. So let me back up. I'm I'm thinking with my wife in mind to slow down and back up. Wisdom is the integration of knowledge and discretion that forms the basis of sound reasoning. And it's from that sound reasoning that a person can speak or act in a manner that is appropriate for that given situation. Now, with that understanding of wisdom, again, it is the integration. It includes both knowledge and discretion. So it's not just information. I know A quick way of defining wisdom, it is the application of knowledge, but it's it's broader than that. It's broader than that. So wisdom, again, is the integration of knowledge and discretion, which means judgment, that forms the basis for sound reasoning, and it's from that sound reasoning that a person can act in a manner that is appropriate for any given situation. Now, with that, I would even say that wisdom is not always knowing what to say, but wisdom is knowing when not to say it. So it's this wisdom, being wise is not only in the things that you say, but it's in the times that you know when to be silent. In the same way that I think corrupt speech is not just saying the wrong things, But sometimes corrupt communication is failing to say the things that you're supposed to say. So wisdom, again, is the the integration. It's the bringing together of both knowledge and judgment that forms the basis for sound reasoning. And from this, a person can act or speak 
in a manner that is appropriate for the situation. Uh, and when you think of that definition, we can think of some things that have been very profound statements and accurate statements, but are stated at the wrong time and the wrong place, then that means it's not wise. So sometimes as Christians, we can be engaged in, in movements and concerns, and then we think that we just because we're speaking the Bible, that gives us the right to be rude. But that's not wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do and what not to do, what to say, what not to say, and when to do it. Now, that brings us to a second thing. With that working definition in mind, let's look at the context in which James addresses wisdom in this passage. So the context in which James addresses wisdom here. And I would argue that the immediate context, because we've mentioned that James is sort of the New Testament wisdom book, but in the immediate context, what James, the, the, that, 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 that forms the basis of his call for wisdom, it really goes back to verse 2. The immediate context of what James is, is in which he addresses wisdom is the various trials that are alluded to in verse 2. And more specifically in verses 2 through 4, James is in what he's, what he's doing is exhorting his readers who are undergoing various trials. He is exhorting them that they would be steadfast in their faith as they go through their trials. That their faith, that in their faith, they would their faith would undergird them, that would provide them a basis of support as they go through their trials. Now, that being the case, there are, there are a couple of things that, that come to mind. Since the, the immediate context in which James is exhorting wisdom is the trials that his audience is going through, therefore, one, we can reason from this, or, or, or I should put it this way, to reason from their faith. As James is saying, he's exhorting them to reason for, from their faith in a manner in, to such a degree that they would know what would be appropriate in their conduct in the midst of their trials. So he is admonishing them in such a way that his readers, he's, he's writing uh, in this case, so that his readers are able to reason from their faith as to what is and what is not appropriate for them to think and act as uh, given the situation that they are in. So he's saying, listen, I know you're in, in a season of trial. So I'm, he's exhorting them to, to be steadfast. And so therefore we can reason from this that, that he, they, what he wants them to do is as they go through the trial, reason from their faith as they are in their trial. Which brings the second thing here. This admonition is based on the presupposition that the gospel is sufficient for them in their trials. That's why he says... To, to be wise, you, 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 remember, wisdom is the integration of knowledge and discretion. And so James is therefore assuming, presupposing, that those who are going, that he's writing to, 
and they're going through their various trials, he is assuming, he, he is exhorting them so that they would reason from their faith what is appropriate and inappropriate conduct and speech for the trials that they are in, assuming and basing it on the idea that their faith, in their, their faith in the gospel, in the gospel they have everything necessary to sustain them for the storm. Then, that being the case, therefore, James is appealing to them that somehow if they feel at a loss as to how they are able to respond to their trial, if they are not able to reason properly from their faith, then James says, ask God for wisdom. James is addressing people who are undergoing a trial. And since they are undergoing a trial, he is telling them to be steadfast, hold on to your faith and, and persevere in the trial. Because he is assuming that their faith being in the gospel, he knows that the gospel is sufficient to strengthen them through the trial. But the reality is this, the trial may be as such that some people don't think they can maintain. So James says, if you feel like you're losing your way, therefore ask God, and here's what he tells them to ask for, ask for wisdom. Which brings us to a third consideration. James asserts, when he tells them to ask for, uh, for wisdom, James asserts that God will liberally give this wisdom to them, to anyone, he says, who asks. So he tells them, if you are in the trial, understand this, that, that, that you're in a trial, and I understand you're in a trial, but if you're in a trial, there is still appropriate conduct for the children of God, even in their trial. Even in our struggles, even in our sorrows, even in our suffering, we never get out, we never get to a place where our faith can't sustain us. So sometimes, and I, I know it, it happens, that sometimes we give people a pass in their conduct because of their suffering, and we should give them wide berth. But still, being in trial, being under sufferings, is no excuse for not holding on to the faith. So therefore, James says that if you find yourself overwhelmed, where you do not feel that you can conduct yourself as you ought in the midst of your trial, ask God for wisdom. And James says very pointedly that God will give liberally to everyone that asks for wisdom. Now hold in mind, that in verse 6, he seems to put a qualification on it. He seems to put a condition for God answering what you ask for. And here's the condition. He says, he says in, in verse 6 that, that we are to ask God for wisdom, he says, but let him ask in faith and no doubting. Then he goes on to describe the doubting person as being unstable in all of their ways. He goes on to say even further that the, that the unstable person should not expect 
to receive anything from the Lord. Think about that. These are strong words. These are strong words, and if they are not handled properly, and if we're not careful and if we're not clear, they can lead to a great deal of misunderstanding. It can lead to a lot of misunderstanding about God, that he only blesses those. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school class, that uh, Benjamin Franklin has forever poisoned the minds of Christians who are not grounded in the word when he said God only helps those who help themselves. Or we could give, the, be, give people the impression that in order to get anything from God, you can't have any doubt or else he won't bless you. And James is not talking about blessings in general. He's speaking specifically about wisdom. So if we're not clear, because James says that if you ask God for wisdom, he'll liberally give it, but he goes on to say that you must ask in faith and not doubting because the doubting person is unstable in all of their ways. And if we are not clear on this, we will not only have and present misunderstandings about God, but also misunderstandings about the Christian faith and the Christian life in particular. So this raises the question that when James talks about doubting, this raises the question, what does James mean by doubting? Now in this context, and since the broader context is Christian, uh, Christians responding to trials, in light of their faith in the gospel, because that is what James is addressing here, in this context, it could be one of at least two things that James is talking about when he refers to doubt. He could be referring to the fact that sometimes storms and trials sort of cause us to assume that the gospel that we hold to by faith is insufficient for the trial that we are in. So maybe what he means by doubting is saying that you, I know you believe God for the salvation of your souls, but sometimes we reach the point where we think that our faith for the salvation of our souls is in one compartment and the trial that we are going through is in another compartment. So we have no doubt about God saving us. We have a doubt about God being able to sustain us in the trial. Or another thing that could be meant by doubt here is assuming that the trial itself is a loss of God's saving grace. In other words, sometimes Christians, even Christians, can reach a point where we assume that we have hit so many roadblocks, we have hit so many things that are going against us, that we assume that the reason we are experiencing these things is because we have fallen out of favor with God. Now, this is seen from the mild superstitions of, well, I used to go to church all the time, and now my life is not going in the right direction. Therefore, it's because I'm not going to church. You know, therefore, yeah, I, my, my marriage broke down because I stopped going to church. That might not be the reason your marriage broke. 
That might not be the reason you didn't get the promotion on your job. It might be you're not qualified. It might not be the reason you didn't get the results that you wanted. Just, in other words, these things are not because you have somehow fallen out of favor with God by stopping something that was good or picking up something that was not. And sometimes trials, so when we doubt, when James is talking about doubting here in this context, it's not questioning whether or not a person is saved. The doubt that he's addressing here is the doubt of the sufficiency of God in light of the storm or trial. And so the doubt could be a matter of them assuming that the gospel is good for salvation, but not good for trials, and especially trials of this sort. Or maybe it's a matter of assuming that the trial is itself because you have somehow out God's grace and you need to get right with God before he, can, he will answer you. I think that's the kind of doubt that James is addressing here. Now, if a person asks God for anything, he says, in a spirit of doubt, or in the spirit, I should say, of these two assumptions, then basically James is saying you shouldn't expect God to answer that. If, if you are asking God for something because you are assuming that your, the gospel itself is not sufficient for the trial, then God's not going to answer that. He's not going to give that. If you are asking because you think that you, are, you need to get right with God because the trial is the result of, of having lost favor with him, then James is saying emphatically, God is not answering that. Don't expect him to, uh, to honor that. In other words, they shouldn't expect anything from God in that regard. Because the totality of God's commitment to us is in the gospel. The totality of God's uh, continuing love for us is contained in the gospel. And so if you are assuming that the gospel is not sufficient, then God is not going to answer that because he's already given you everything in the gospel. Or if you are assuming that the trials have come your way, because God has, is no longer in favor with you. Again, he's not going to answer it because his favor for you is confirmed in the gospel. But that leads us to a fourth thing. The fact that James refers to the doubting person as being double-minded. I would argue this, that this is indicative of the fact that he assumes that the person that he's writing to is a genuine believer. I know the term is unusual. Some have even suggested that, that James has made this term up. Actually, a similar term occurs like this in Psalms 12, verse 2, but that's not the point here. I would argue this, that James says the doubting person is double-minded, and this is indicative of his assumption that they are genuine believers. Because the term that he uses here suggests a person that has two souls. And this is a struggle that is not, uh, it is not something that an unbeliever can experience. 
Now, in contemporary psychological terms, we would call this split personality. But in biblical terms, we refer to it as the struggle between our old Adamic nature, which is to say the inclinations and the impulses of our fallen nature and our renewed nature in Christ Jesus. And in our renewed nature, we have new affections and new appetites. For the unregenerate, there is a singular power at work in them. And that is the inclination of their fallen nature. They have all of the reinforcement they need by Satan himself and the collective, fallen, uh, the collective mindset of fallen humanity. So for the unbeliever, they're not struggling with the will of God. For the unbeliever, they are only struggling to be more of them. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, those who are now in Christ are also in conflict. And the reason we are in conflict we are, is because now in Christ we have, two new, we have a new desire. And that new desire exists alongside old desires that always flare up. And so there's conflict because now we have a desire to do the will of God. Paul tells, tells the Philippians that it is God who is at work in you, causing you to will and do of his good pleasure. And so therefore in our renewed state, we have now an affection for the things of God and we have a desire to follow the, uh, we have a desire to do and follow the will of God. However, the desire to follow the dictates of our fallen nature is also at play. And so the Christian life is a life of struggle. It is a struggle between, on the one hand, what we know in our flesh, and on the other hand, what we know in Christ. And that's more of the image that James has here when he speaks of the one who has two souls. So, as it relates to, I think James is making a twofold point. Number one, he's making the point when he talks about these, what seems to be qualifications, that God will grant whatever we desire in conjunction with our desire to walk in and to better understand what he has given us in the gospel. Because God is not going, he can't enlarge anything. He doesn't give us anything that we don't already have in Christ. Because as Peter says, he has given us every, or as Paul says, he's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. So we already have all things. And so a part of James' point here is that God will grant whatever we desire in conjunction with our new desire to walk, and, uh, to walk in and to better understand what he's given us in the gospel. He will not hold that back. That's why we have the Lord's table. God continuously shows us what we have in Christ. That's why we have the continual preaching of the gospel. God unfolds to us to varying degrees what we have in Christ. 
And so if you ask for that, he's not going to give you more of it, but he gives you more, a, a better glimpse of it. And it's from that better glimpse that we're able to make better choices, knowing that we are not, we're, we're not forsaken anymore. And so therefore, and that's why Jesus says that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it. He guarantees that. And so the guarantee that James gives here actually corresponds to the guarantee that Jesus gives us in prayer. Jesus doesn't say whatever you ask for, God will give it to you. But whatever you ask in my name, and what does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? It is to ask in terms of who we are. In, it's, it's in light of our union with him. It's in light of what he has accomplished on our behalf in the gospel. In other words, what God has, everything that we need is in Christ. And, Paul, and Jesus is saying, everything that you need to know about me, ask and the Father will give it to you. So that we would know who and what we have in him. But here's the flip side of that. So James is making the point that God will grant. And I guarantee that. I stand behind that. I, not on my own merits. I stand behind it on the merits of the scriptures. There is no one that will ask in faith of, of more of a glimpse of Christ who are already in Christ that he will not give. And so when James says, ask if you lack wisdom, in other words, if you, if you lose a sense of perspective of how you are to conduct yourselves in the trial, ask God for wisdom. And what he'll do is give you a better glimpse of Christ so that you are able to endure the trial because you are in Christ. But on the flip side of that, and I say this emphatically, God will give nothing to reinforce or to gratify our fallen affections and appetites. He will give nothing. You can get that anywhere. You can get that at the drugstore. God will not give anything. And that's what James means. He will give everything to enhance your grasp of what you have in the gospel in Christ. And he will give nothing to enhance or reinforce the corruption of your fallen nature. Now, this twofold truth is reflected in James' writings, even in chapter 4. Look in chapter 4 of James in verse 3. And he says this, and it's, it's right in line. It's really an extenuation of what he says here in chapter 1. But he says in verse 3, You ask and you do not receive. There it is. You ask, in other words, you pray to God and he does not give it. And why is it that he doesn't give it? You ask because, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, the Greek term that's translated there, you wrongly ask, is diseased. In other words, you are asking out of the disease of your corrupt and fallen nature. The best way I can describe it is, we all have family members that have issues, and if my family members, anyone in my family, if I'm able to help them, I will help them, no questions asked. But if I know that there's alcohol problem or drug problem, there's an addiction that they are feeding, and they ask for $5, 
If they say they need food, I'll buy the food. But knowing the struggle that they have, I will not put $5 in their hands. Why? Because I know what they're going to spend it on. That's what James is saying here. He says, if you ask out of your doubt, what are the things that we will ask God for when we assume that the trial that we are going through is somehow greater than the gospel that he's given us? What kind of nonsense will we ask God for if we assume that the trial that we are going through is because he no longer loves us? And so for that reason, James says here in chapter 4, that God doesn't give it. So he's answering the question that he suggests in chapter 1 when he says that the unstable person, because what you're asking God for is not to feed the new man that's been created in Christ. You're asking stuff that will confirm your corrupt fallen nature. And in that sense, James says, you have no reason to expect God to answer or to honor what you're asking for. Let me just bring this to a conclusion. The crux of James' exhortation for Christians who are experiencing trials is that if you are at a loss for what to say and for what to do that is appropriate for your faith in the midst of your trial, then James is saying, ask God and he'll give you wisdom that is appropriate for the moment. Ask God and he will generously reaffirm to you the sufficiency of his grace in the gospel. And he will generously reaffirm to you the steadfast and unbreakable bond of his love that is displayed in the gospel. The assumption is that the reiteration of these truths will provide the wisdom that you need to guide you so that you can be steadfast in your trial. This is not saying that the trial will go away, but it's so that you can be steadfast in your faith as you go through the trial. Although he doesn't use the word wisdom, what James is saying here is really uh, in our text. What James is saying in our text is echoed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Notice his words. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundant and in need, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What James is saying is if God has put a trial in your path, it's not because he doesn't love you. And it's not, it doesn't mean that the trial is, that the, that the gospel is not sufficient for the trial. So if you feel that, that the trial is giving you an excuse to give way to your old fallen corrupt nature, then James says, ask wisdom from God and he will faithfully give. 
In fact, not faithfully. He says he will generously give everything that is necessary for you to hold on in your faith. I like the way Paul expresses it in Romans chapter 8. And you can just imagine yourself as a Christian going through particular trials and you're wondering if this trial is the thing that can separate you from the love of God or if you're wondering if this trial will bring you down. So here's the wisdom that we need for our trials because as Paul himself learns that sometimes God doesn't take every thorn out, he leaves it in so that his grace would be multiplied in it. So we can't reason from this that I need something in addition to my faith in the gospel. We can't reason from our trials that God has somehow turned his face and his favor away from us. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? In other words, can I insert something here? What can we say to these trials? What can we say to these sufferings? But here's how we reason from what God gives us in the gospel. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, 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 with him Give us, graciously give all things to us. Who then can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's God, God who justifies. And who is it therefore to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that. He who was raised, who is right now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us in the midst of our trials. He is at the right hand of the Father, raised, interceding for us. So, so here's wisdom. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, maybe nakedness, or maybe the dangers of the sword? He says, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, or any other thing is able in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't know your trial. But if your faith is in the gospel of God's grace, then reason from that in your trial. And I assure you, if you ask, if you, if you can't, you say, I just can't see it, then ask God for wisdom and he will give it to you. Amen.